0: I want to start by reading first three verses of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. God, I pray that as we take a look at the book of Revelation, you would open our minds. Uh, We are to be blessed by you if we seek to keep the words of this prophecy. So I pray that you would help us to understand it, that we might keep it. I pray that you would help me. This is a very uh, challenging book, so I pray that you would help me to stick handle some of the more sensitive issues uh, and bring some illumination to the men of this church of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. Jesus, we thank you that you sent this revelation by an angel to John and we thank you for John who wrote it down for us and we thank you for the church that has preserved it right up to this present day that we can read it and receive the blessing so please fill us with your spirit I know he dwells in us but I pray that he would minister among us teaching us giving us insight revelation uh, knowledge understanding Uh, we need you always in every adventure into the word of God but especially Uh, in this capstone book this final book so please help us in christ's name amen this book is the revelation of jesus christ and this can mean so many things it is the revelation of it's the revealing of who jesus actually is it's the revelation by jesus he gave this revelation to us by an angel sent to John on the island of Patmos. And Jesus Christ is the revelation. Uh, So if you want to know Jesus Christ, you need to know this book. Because this is a book that reveals him more fully. Think of it this way. If, If there's a curtain in reality... And we are playing on this side of the curtain in the world and everything seems real enough to us, right? The book of Revelation is the drawing back of this great curtain to allow us to see what is actually reality. So it's so disorienting for us because we're not used to reality. We're not used to being at the center of all things that are real. This book takes us to the very throne of God and on the throne of God is the Ancient of Days and in the middle of that throne is the Lamb, which is Christ. We, that is the center of all reality and this book peels back the curtains unlike any other book and allows us to step into the center of all that is true and real. And I just wanted to start with that because it seems so unreal. And, you know, you talk about, you hear commentators talk about it's the apocalyptic genre and it's all full of symbolism, and et cetera, et cetera. And that's true. But there's something more real about these symbols than the world in which we live. There's a number of issues that we need to address before we get going into this book. The how are you to understand the book of Revelation? There's as many structures for the book of Revelation as there are commentaries. There is, there's nobody that is willing to just take someone else's structure and say, that's it, that's the definitive word. That's, that's how this book is structured. That's part of its genius, perhaps. I think it also requires us to come to this book with a certain humility. Um, we will not fully understand this book until it's all come to pass. So trying to line everything up just so will fail. And that's, a lot of people have tried and no one has got it right. So even today I'm going to give you a structure. It's not the last word. It's not the definitive structure. It's just my best effort at trying to understand how this book is put together. I want to tell you what drives me in this book though. It is such a complex book that my impulse is to follow the path of greatest simplicity. And I think that will really help us because we can get so lost in the jungle of the apocalyptic imagery that we make it more complicated than it needs to be. So the structure that I'm going to show you today is I think the simplest structure. It doesn't mean it's right, but I've tried to say, well, what's the... What's the tenor of the book? Or if this was a piece of wood, what's the grain of this piece of wood? And let's just go with it. Rather than trying to wrestle with every image and make every image the definitive moment, let's just allow the book to take us downstream. So that's the first thing, structure. Second thing that we have to deal with, and I'll I'll explain it more when we get there, but chapters 6 through 19... You have, everyone agrees on this. You have seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Some people will add seven signs. But that's, see, I didn't do that because there's nowhere in the book that says seven signs. So somebody's counting them up and saying, oh, isn't that cute and neat and it fits? And that, I think the Bible Project did that. Um, but I've resisted that. It's not necessarily wrong, but all those seven signs fall right in 1115 to 16:1, 1, where I've just put that in the seven bowls. We'll get to that later, but what we have to do with these, this is what everyone agrees on. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. You have to decide, is this sequential unfolding from one through to 19.21 sequentially, or is it cyclical, meaning that the seven seals equal the seven trumpets, equal the seven bowls, meaning and a lot of people do this, especially if you're all millennial. There's really only one story here, and we're getting it from one angle with the seals. We're getting it from another angle with the trumpets, and a third angle with the bowls. So that's an option that a lot of lot of biblically literate theologians go with. So the other option is sequential. There's seven. Uh, seals, then there are seven trumpets, then there are seven bowls. So is it sequential or cyclical? I went with sequential. And I'll I'll explain more why. But I have adopted the telescope view. So I didn't create this. This is one of the four major ways of reading this, which says... It's all sequential, but the seventh seal is seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is seven bowls of wrath. And that seems to make the most sense to me when you just read the book. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more. But I, I wanted to at least show you that there are those, those options out there. So is it sequential? Is it cyclical? Or is it um, telescopic? And it's telescopic because out of the seventh comes seven more, and out of the seventh trumpet comes seven more. If you go with a telescopic view, which is what we're going to do, the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl all have the same finale. You don't get to the end of the seventh seal until you get to the end of the seventh trumpet because the seventh seal is seven trumpets and you don't get to the end of the seventh trumpet until you get to the end of the seventh bowl because the seventh trumpet is seven bowls, which is why, this is my opinion, which is why commentators make the mistake, in quotation marks, I think it's a mistake, um, to say that it's cyclical, that that it's parallel. If you read them, the first seal and the first trumpet and the first bowl are not the same. But you can come to that conclusion because the seventh are all the same, in this sense. The end of the seventh is all the same. So these are some issues that you have to deal with. Another issue that you have to deal with is what's the big structure, the macro structure? I think the simplest is to divide this book. It has a definite prologue. You actually get near unanimous support in the commentaries. Chapter 1 verses 1 to 8 is a prologue because you get a new superscription in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. That's a new intro. So 1 to 8 is a prologue. And most all commentaries that I read said that 22, 6 to 21 is an epilogue. And so you go back there, you see that you're sort of done with the new heavens and the new earth. And you have 22.6, and it says, And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So it's wrapping it all up. Everything that you've read in the book of Revelation is true. And then it goes on, behold, I'm coming soon. Yes, come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be on everyone I kind of compacted that but it's, it's, it has an epilogue nature to it wrapping up, in my opinion not only the book of Revelation but the whole Bible because I have a very canonical view as you know of the Bible so yes, 66 individual books but this, this book is last so the epilogue of Revelation is the epilogue of the Bible so, okay well that, that's not very controversial we have right now the prologue and the epilogue, that's great now, what do we do with the rest? And this is where, oh, my goodness, you see all kinds of creative structures that are interesting. Some of them are appealing. Some of them are inviting. Some of them are just intimidating. Like I saw one where we got to, I think, O, like on a chiasm, all the way to O, and then all the way back to A, and yeah, maybe, but it's so forced, So again, going back to my early premise, if we're going to understand this book, go with the simplest reading. And if you look, just open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those those that are, So I better start over, because this is really important. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. That's the first thing. Those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So you're getting a direct instruction from Jesus through the angel to John. This is how I want you to structure your book. Write everything that you've already seen. That's part one. Then I want you to write things that are currently happening. Then I want you to write things that have to happen after this. And and to supplement my point, we go on to verse 20, and it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." And if you go back to the intro, this or the prologue, this is a letter to the seven churches uh, in Asia Minor. So, chapter 1 is a vision of Jesus. It's not the Jesus that you cuddle up beside. It's not Swedish Jesus that pets lambs on wall carpets. This is the real Jesus that has been revealed to us. It's not Buddy Christ or any action figure. This is the all-powerful God of the universe. So, that is what has been. So when he says, write, therefore the things that you have seen, that is that first vision of Jesus. He's walking through... uh, through seven lampstands, it's probably a menorah where you have seven, seven lamps all tied into one. I'll talk about that in a moment. And in his hand, he has seven stars. And he has a sword coming out of his mouth. And he's got white hair and fire for eyes and bronze feet. Like, just scary Jesus. But a Jesus that I think as men, we, this should be our Jesus. I mean, understand what I'm saying. There's only one Jesus. But this is the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it starts with an image of this Jesus, a revelation of him. Yes. Um, well, number one, the resurrection body of Jesus is never described for us. Except that he can appear and disappear. He can ascend. Uh, He's unrecognizable to people who know him very well. He has to convince them that it's him. Uh, So we don't get any clear details. Here we get very clear details. Is this literal or not? I don't know. It's apocalyptic so everything has a meaning. So the white hair reminds us of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, which means he's equal to God the Father. So every one of those things has theological import. The sword coming out of his mouth. I don't think he has a sword coming out of his mouth, but his words are the sword. Yeah. So, so I think it's figurative in many ways, but it's, this is the most accurate picture of Christ as he is second most accurate would be the transfiguration and then it's not as if he's not himself when he's veiled in flesh and nobody knows that he's God but he hasn't revealed the fullness of himself in the incarnation he's hidden himself in plain view which is why I love this picture of Christ so understand me, I'm not saying that he's changing, I'm just saying the curtain has been drawn back and we get to see him for who he really is and he's, he's frightening. We ought to fear him as we fear the Lord. Okay, so moving on, um, so that's the first part. What was is chapter 1 verses 9 to 20. And that is a massively important part of the whole book. There's three parts to this book, and you cannot um, judge the value of any given section based on its length. The book opens very deliberately with a portrait of Christ, which carries perhaps more weight than anything in the whole book. So section one is this vision of Christ What I love is he's walking among seven lampstands. We've seen this lampstand before in the tabernacle. Which means he's the great high priest who is ministering in the presence of God. And we are now fulfillment of that light. And the seven stars show his cosmic power. And they are angels who are to minister to each of these churches. Seven churches. Why seven churches? These are seven historical churches in Asia Minor, current day Turkey. But God has specifically planted those seven churches to represent the universal church in all times, in all places. Again, very little debate about that. Seven, the number of perfection, completion. These seven historical churches represent the church. They represent us. So that's the first part. Write what was, then you are to write those that are. So the second section, those that are, is verses 2 1 to 322. And what you'll see in these chapters is what? These are seven letters from Jesus to the seven churches of Asia Minor. This is the only time in the the Bible or outside of the Bible where we have Jesus as the author explicitly. So Jesus has authored these letters. He has sent these letters by the angel. The angel has dictated these letters to John and John has written them down. This is an amazing part of the Bible uh, to think that we have no mediation through anyone. It doesn't make Paul's letters any less the word of God. But I have to admit that there's something about instead of saying, you know, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the church at Ephesus, instead you read, to the angel of the church in Ephesus... Write this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. Like first person, Jesus Christ dictating his letters to the seven churches. Bam, then we get it. Now, I, today we just don't have time to go through these seven letters. That is a, a great sermon series, a great study series. It, it would be a wonderful thing to do. We could do a whole phase of frontline looking at those letters. But what I want to point out to you is that's what is in the structure. Seven letters from Jesus to seven historical churches in Asia Minor. However, seven, in my mind, represents all churches, all local churches. That's us. Those were letters written to us, and we would do well to take them seriously. So that second section is the church age. Now, the third part, and if you go back to Revelation 1.19, write therefore the things that you have seen, it's chapter 1, 9 to, to 20. Those that are, that's chapters 2 and 3. And those that are to take place after this. That's chapters 4 through to the end of the book. How do I know this? Well, go to chapter 4, verse 1. After this, after the seven letters to the seven churches, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, I believe that's Jesus, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So it's pretty clear that this is the structure of the book. What you've seen, and then in verses verse 20, Jesus Describes the meaning of what he saw, and then what is, chapters 2 and 3, and then what must happen after this, chapters 4 through 22, which means that chapters 4 through 22 are future. Now, the problem is we're 2,000 years removed from this, so without a shadow of a doubt, chapters 4 through 22 were future in 94. AD, right? When John wrote this, everything that he wrote from chapter 4 forward is future for him. But it's been 2,000 years, so is it future for us? And let me just say, I don't know. But I do know some things. I know that the end of what is yet to take place has not yet happened. So let's start there. This I want you to write what must take place after this ends with a new heavens and a new earth. Right before the new heavens and the new earth, you have the final judgment. That hasn't happened yet. Right before that, you have a millennial kingdom, whatever we want to do with that millennial kingdom. There's definitely a millennial kingdom in the text. So we can try to theologize it away, but it's there, so it's either future or whatever so either we're in that millennial kingdom or its future so the millennial kingdom is sort of that one place where well maybe we're in it but yet if you keep going back from the end to the beginning uh, right before the millennial kingdom is the return of Christ that hasn't happened yet which makes me believe that the millennial kingdom is still future you see just take the simplest reading so the, the return of Christ in chapter 19 hasn't happened yet the fall of Babylon Babylon is the world system the world In that, that's a tradition going all the way back to Isaiah he talked about two cities the city of the rebel city that will be destroyed and the city of God the new Jerusalem so you have the world which is Babylon going all the way back to the tower of Babel so it's rebellious humanity rebellious humanity hasn't fallen yet and so on so I know that as we get, and we're going to go through this sequentially, once you get to the seventh bowl, six, five, even, actually even all of the bowls. You know, you know why bowl one is like everybody dies, everything dies in the sea. That hasn't happened yet. Bowl number two is what? It's all of the springs and rivers become blood. That hasn't happened yet. Unless you want to say, well, that's not what it means. But like the image, whether or not it's real blood or not, the image is there's no drinking water. So, yeah, I'm not against the imagery, but what's the image mean? So all that to say, I think I've proved my point sufficiently for now, is I don't know when it says write what must take place after this if that's started yet, but I do know it hasn't finished. Okay. So... I'll leave it there for now. A couple of options are that the preterists would tell you that the entire book of Revelation is completed. It's all fulfilled already. That's called a preterist. They they take everything to 70 AD. So the book of Revelation is early and it's all basically one big prophecy for the fall of, of Jerusalem by the Romans. I'm not very persuaded by that. Um, another view is partial preterism, that some of it is fulfilled, but some of it is future. I'm open to that. Then you have um, different levels of dispensationalism, okay? Without getting into all of that, what, let's go to the most extreme. They would say that everything from chapter 6-1 to nineteen twenty one will happen in the last seven years of human history, I'm not sure that I need to go there either, but I don't know. That's where I just don't know. But that's, that's the extreme end of futurism. I'm probably more in a historic dispensational view or, a you know, this view that most of it's future. Uh, but when we get into the first few seals, I'm just not sure. So that's where I'm at. You can decide where you're at. But let me just say, I don't think it matters. I think that we've got caught up in a whole bunch of distraction. What matters is the end. And generally, like, the f- closer you get to the, the first seal, the less important it is and the more general it is. You'll, you'll notice that. So I think I've dealt with most of the tricky issues. What I want to show you now, we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at what is to come. When you see the simple structure, it's really beautiful. I think, I think it's very exciting. It is bookended by two visions, two heavenly visions. You have chapters 4 and 5, which is a vision, I call it the vision of the scroll. And I'm going to tell you why. We can be distracted, we call it a vision of, of the throne of God, we could call it the vision of the, of the lion of the tribe of Judah or the lamb or whatever. But I actually think the, the center of this vision, although all of that is impressive and important, the focus of these two chapters is the scroll. And I think that becomes really important for the structure of the whole book. Nevertheless, we have these two chapters of heavenly vision. John is caught up into heaven, and he sees some amazing things, And it ends with two chapters of a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And in between is the end of human history. That's for sure. Everyone agrees with that. How you parse it out, very complicated, controversial. Okay? So let let us then go through this. Chapters 4 and 5, the vision of the scroll. In chapter 4, what we mostly get is the Bible's clearest revelation of the throne of God in heaven. And if I had time, I would show you that every image in that description is meant to strike the fear of God in you. Everything there says, this is not a place I want to be. This is a scary place. Not because it's scary in and of itself, but because of who we are. We, in our sinfulness, have no right to to go to that place. In fact, those four living creatures that are flying around the throne, they are the, cherub, the cherubim that were referenced in Genesis 3. And you'll remember that those cherubim, their, their sole uh, job with regard to humanity was to kill on sight. Kill on sight anyone who's getting too close to the garden right and we find out later that the garden is in this throne room okay so we we get a vision we never get a description of god the father but we are we are drawn to if you're reading this and you're familiar with your bibles you go immediately to daniel 7 daniel 7 is a vision of the ancient of days seated on a throne where we actually do get a description of god which is i think the only time the god the father And then we have one like the Son of Man who is coming on the clouds to receive authority from the Ancient of Days. That's Daniel 7. That's why Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And that's why he says, You'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. This is that. We see the ancient, well, we we see the throne where the Ancient of Days is seated. You supply the imagery from Daniel 7 yourself. That's part of the genius, I think, is you get this superimposition. You don't get a repetition. You, You just bring it over and you put it on top. And then in Daniel 7, you have one like a son of man, that is a human being, ascending up to receive all of the authority of God. And it's really confusing in Daniel because is this God or is this a human being because he has the authority of God, but he's a man. Here, we're we're told that there's a scroll. What is this scroll? In the hand of the one seated on the throne, the Ancient of Days is a scroll. Well, that would be the scroll of authority over all things. The authority to bring about the end. I would say that the scroll is the book of Revelation itself. And you, I'll, I'll prove that to you in, in just a moment when we get to the structure of the seals. And nobody has the authority to take the scroll and open its seals. That is, no one has the authority has authority to open the scroll. Opening the scroll is to have authority over history, to have authority over all things, in essence, to have the authority of God, to be sovereign except for the line of the tribe of Judah. And so John looks is, looks for a lion, and it's a lamb. So we know we're talking about Jesus. And we could go all the way back to Genesis, right? We talked about that, this, the lion of the tribe of Judah, all the way forward, and this is Christ himself. So Jesus goes, and he takes a scroll, and then there's this massive worship in heaven of myriads upon myriads, millions and millions of angels, and then redeemed humanity, worshiping Jesus. So that's the vision of the scroll. It's the vision of the scroll because it's all about who has the authority to open the scroll, and the scroll is handed from God the Father to God the Son, and he's the only one with the authority to open it, and that's, that's the structure of the book of Revelation. It's actually not a complicated structure. The structure is seven seals which is why I'm telescopic in my understanding of the book because in this vision is setting up the structure of the book, and the vision doesn't say we have a scroll, and we have a trumpet, and we have a bowl. It says we have a scroll with seals on it. And the whole book of Revelation, we progress in the book as he opens more seals. Now when we get to the seventh seal, pop it open, you get a whole page and this scroll comes out and you find out, wow, we've got seven trumpets. So within that seventh seal, you have seven trumpets. But the structure of the book is along the top. So from 6-1 to nineteen twenty one, we fi- find out what happens in the opening of the seven seals. Now look at how quick the first five seals are. Bang, 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 bang. Then the sixth seal's a little bit longer. But then the seventh seal goes from chapter 8 to 19. So the seventh seal is by far the longest because in it you have the seven trumpets. But then look at the seven trumpets when you get to chapter 8. So the book itself, you go to 717, you see that? And then if you're reading, you drop down now to the trumpet line that I have there, and you have four quick succession trumpets. Bang, 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 bang. Then a little bit of a medium one and then a longer one. The sixth trumpet is a little bit longer and then you have the seventh trumpet which takes you from 1115 to 1921. This is all a part of the seventh seal. Now, you go down, the seventh trumpet starts with the bringing together of the two sides. I'll talk about that. And then you have six bowls poured out on the earth in quick succession. And then the seventh bowl occupies the last two and a half chapters of the book. Or of this section before we get to the vision of the new heavens and new earth. Any questions on the structural level? Now we're just going to run through it and say a few things about it, which will bring us to the end. Everyone understand the telescopic view of the structure and why we got there? Who is going to open the scroll who has the authority to open the seals as says nothing about trumpets or bowls? Okay so simple structure actually seven seals Okay, no questions All right um, First seal There's a white horse, and the rider has a bow, and is given. He comes out conquering, and is given authority to conquer. It is. This is frustratingly vague, and I think that's the point. Like, w- I. This is where I am partial preterist. I. I just think. That white horse is just the reality that right up until the end, there's going to be uh, politics, real politics. There's going to be diplomacy. There's going to be conquering. Much has been made of he has a bow, but there's no mention of the arrows. That might be true. So this is, this is just the fact that nations are going to try to work in their own self-interest through diplomacy and treaty-making, maybe so, so there's no actual weapons. There's just an empty bow and there's conquering. It's just the reality of the nations, I think. Second seal is a red horse and this horse has a sword and he's permitted to take peace from the earth. So these nations, they're not just going to interact dip- uh, with diplomacy and treaty. They're, they're going to go to war against each other. Right up until the end. Do not for a moment think that the coming of Christ is the beginning of this golden age where there's no diplomacy, politics, or war. So the second seal is equally vague. Third seal, black horse, rider has a pair of scales. as prices were inflated eight to, ti- eight to ten times their normal. So this rider comes out with scales and then the four living creatures... T- tell us about the inflation, how things cost an exuberant price. This is just, in a fallen world, the economy is, is going to be unjust. Now, could we tie this to actual events? Sure, but I mean, there's just so many events to choose from in all of these things. Fourth seal is a pale horse. The rider was death, and Hades followed after him. Jesus has come, he has been raised from the dead, but people are still going to die. I think that's about as much as we can say about it. Hades is not hell. Hades is Sheol. Hades is the place of the dead, so people die and go to Sheol. Uh, it's, it's basically life as as normal. The first four horses of the apocalypse. You, you hear about that. Uh, the four horses of the apocalypse. This is the big ending. I think this is just life as it always has been in a fallen world. So the first four seals in some ways to me are sort of no big deal. It's just life in a fallen world. Fifth seal s- tells us that there are souls of the martyrs under the altar. That is so in the, in the fourth seal, death condemned some people to Hades which is Sheol but the fifth seal says but some people are going to die and go to heaven in this age the church age. Sixth seal there's an earthquake, the sun is blackened, the moon is bloodied, stars fall to the earth, the sky's rolled up like a scroll, mountains and islands are removed. What you have to know about that is apocalyptic and prophetic imagery has used this kind of imagery forever. We don't actually have to see the Andromeda Galaxy fall on Earth. We don't need stars falling on Earth. This is just, there's going to be a shaking of the whole universe. The human activity and sin affects the whole universe that's basically what's going on here and then it says kings and generals of the earth are going to fear the coming of the lord so something's going to happen in the natural order of things uh, here on earth but to the far reaches of the universe where now finally the kings of the earth are going to say something is happening and i'm afraid i'm afraid that judgment is coming i want to hide under a mountain so so something is happening. This is where I think now we're getting into something that hasn't happened yet. I have not seen a great outcry of, of kings like this. Some commentators argue that this is Christendom. It's, I'm not convinced. There's going to be some cataclysmic shaking of the universe that causes people to fear and to say, Wow, there is a God. This is where you get the 144,000 sealed, 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. I know it's not an exact list of the tribes that we get in the Old Testament. I I just don't have time to address that right now. There's lots of fun theories about that. I don't know that we can make too much of this. 144,000 is 12,000 times 12. So if we use numbers symbolically, it's the elect from Israel, God, through everything that's going to happen, there's not one Israelite, not one Jew that God foreknew from before the foundation of the earth that's going to be lost. And the reason I would say that, you go on right after that, and we find out that there's also in heaven, we're in chapter 7, verses 9 to 17, an incalculable multitude from every nation. So you have Israel and the nations. I think all this is saying and we don't need to make it any more complicated, is no matter what happens, because it's going to get ugly as we get close to the end, no one from Israel or the nations that God has elected will be lost. But the hard, times are hard times are coming. And Now we get to the seventh seal, which takes us from one to 9.21. So let's just recap the first six seals. There's going to be nations who engage in diplomacy and politics, There's going to be war on the earth. The economy is going to be unjust. People are going to die and go to Hades waiting judgment to be thrown into hell. And people are going to die and go to heaven. And then there's going to be some cataclysmic event that causes the nations to fear and to know that judgment is coming. But the elect will stand. They've been sealed by God. I think that's the first six seals seventh seal there's silence in heaven for half an hour what i like about that is there's time in heaven so all this timelessness revelation 8:1 um which makes sense right otherwise everyone in heaven's just frozen still uh so there's silence in heaven why it's the silence of the great gas A great, you know, the inhalation before the great awful battle. And then we're told that seven angels are given seven trumpets. See, this is part of the seventh seal. Silence and then trumpets. So what is the seventh seal? It's seven trumpets. Then the angels offer up the prayers of the saints before the seven trumpets are blown much could be said about that about the effectiveness of prayer and so on but our prayers again we have this temple imagery that rises like the incense in the tabernacle first trumpet there's hail and fire mixed with blood thrown out down to the earth and we find out that a third of the earth is burnt up a third of the trees are burned up and a third of the grass is burned up so this is focused squarely on land and vegetation is it all green not a third Okay, all green grass. Thank you. So, global warming. There's some kind of extreme global warming. Second trumpet there's a volcano that is thrown in the sea, and a third of the sea becomes blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea die, and a third of the ships are destroyed. There's havoc in the seas. I don't think we need to be more specific. Third trumpet, great star falls from heaven blazing like a torch, and a third of the rivers and springs become wormwood, and many people die from water. There's a major shortage of drinkable water. Fourth trumpet, a third of the sun is struck, a third of the moon is struck, and a third of the stars are struck. And it talks about darkness. There's some... There's something going on here where the cosmos is being shielded from us, whether it's because of some great volcanic cloud over top of the earth where we're in darkness, we don't know. But the whole point is the light of the heavens is not making it to earth. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. There's a great co to this is the plagues in Egypt, right? Which is leading up to the great Passover. When Christ returns, there's the judgment and we're passed over. Good. Thank you. Fifth, uh, oh, I love this. An eagle flies over as if it's not bad enough by now. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's three woes to come. He's talking about the last three trumpets. He's going to get really, really bad. Fifth trumpet is the first woe. Now, I think we're in the future through these trumpets, okay? Personally, I think once you get to the sixth seal where there's this cataclysmic event in the, in the cosmos and the kings of the earth are afraid of the coming of God, I think that's not yet happened. So I think all of this is future. That's me. You can decide for yourself. I take a sequential view of this. But notice the fifth trumpet is the first woe and that's when a star falls from heaven and is given keys to the bottomless pit. This star, is, stars in the book of Revelation are usually angels. It's a demon angel called Abaddon or Apollyon. It's probably Satan. So God casts him out he has, uh, from heaven. Satan has access to heaven and earth. But not here. The first woe is get out of heaven. That's enough of you up here. And then locusts like scorpion horses. And I mean there's hair like women's hair and faces like lions' faces. and It was pretty grotesque. Basically I, I think these are demons. Satan is thrown out of heaven. He says God has by his common grace imprisoned so many demons so that we're not overrun with evil from the angelic realm. But when we get close to the end, God's like, well, go, go have at it. And Satan springs them from their dungeon. And these demons are given permission by God to hurt people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads for five months. I don't know what to make of the five months. It might be a literal five months. I see no reason why not. Um, but look at how awful evil is. The people that God has not sealed are the ones that they have permission to hurt. So the evil is like eating their own. It's cannibalism. Like Satan hates us, but he doesn't have permission to hurt us, so he turns on his own. The, The unbelievers, which is interesting. Sixth trumpet is the second woe. There's four angels bound at the river Euphrates. And uh, if you read other, like, um, especially uh, apocryphal uh, books, these are angels that God had imprisoned there because of their sins. So these are demon angels, like fallen angels. And God releases them. And it's very specific. God put them in, in chains f- until this moment of this day of this year. Like, so we're, we, yes, we're in the world of symbols, But there's something very specific about the chronology of this happening now. And they are released and given permission to kill one-third of humankind. I think they can be indiscriminate, believers or non-believers. And we're told they do it with plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur from their mouths, and they have tails like um, serpents that bite people. I don't think any of that really matters. I think we could delve into those images, The point is, these demons use their demonic powers to bring about real death to one-third of the world's population. That's what matters. And we're told that there are 2 times 10,000 times 10,000. That is 200 million demons. Ugh that's not going to be a nice time to be on the face of the earth. 200 million demons. And John even says, I noted the number. Like he's saying, this is not a symbolic number. Well, maybe it is symbolic, but he's saying, I noted this number. In, In whether it's a literal number or it's a symbolic number, the whole point is, there's a lot of demons hurting people and they kill a third of the people on the earth. That's the second Whoa! the two-third of humanity that did not die they do not repent and look at the the sins that are highlighted for their murder sorcery sexual immorality or theft I don't know that that's exclusive but that's what it says now at this point before we get to the seventh trumpet an angel descends. But this is still part of the seventh seal. This is why I don't like popping out of the structure. Part of the seventh seal, you have the first six trumpets, then a little pause, which you have sort of right there. You see that, that pause right there uh, before you get to the seventh trumpet, that part. And that's when an angel descends from heaven, puts one foot on the land, one foot in the water, and he has a little scroll, and he gives it to John to eat. And it tastes sweet in his mouth, but it sours in his belly. Like, what in the world is this? You can get so distracted by this. This, All this is, is John is exhausted spiritually for what he has seen and written down. And so this is just a little breather. That's all this is. A little breather for John. And the little scroll is the word of God. God. And it tastes sweet in John's mouth because, well, the Word of God is great, but it sours in his stomach because what he has to continue to prophesy is the seventh trumpet, which is going to be filled with all kinds of awful reality. So this is an encouragement to John. Keep going, John. He's then given a measuring rod, and he's told to measure the temple of God and the altar and the people who worship there. He's not to measure the courtyard because it will be trampled by the nations for 42 months. Oh man, there's so much to talk about. Is this a real temple? Is it the people of God? I don't know. Uh, here's the point. Um, people who are on God's side for 42 months, whether that's symbolic or, or the last three and a half years of human history, right? If you're hyper dispensational, at this point, this is the midpoint, mid-tribulation breather 42 more months to go because that's three and a half years so whether or not it's the halfway point of the last seven years of human history I don't know but it is the last half if we're going back to Daniel 9 the last half of the prophecy for the end so we're at the m- midway point of the, of the prophecy whether it's chronological or not I don't know but we're at the midpoint of the prophecy of the things that are yet to ha- come And then two witnesses are given authority to prophesy for 1,260 days. That's 42 months. So these two witnesses will be active during this last half of the prophecy of the um, end of human history. So they are killed and then they're raised back to life again. Who are these two prophets? I don't know. Some people say it's the church. Some people say it's Enoch and Elijah. Some people say it's Moses and Elijah. There's no way for us to know. It's in the future. After it happens, I'll let you know. But it's someone on God's side who's speaking the truth. They get murdered, either two individuals or all of the, the believers, and they're dead for three days, and then they're raised back to life again. Now we get to the seventh trumpet, which is the third woe. And this takes us from chapter 1115 to 1921. The seventh trumpet is blown, and then there are loud voices in heaven which declare that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. So the, the, the trumpet is blown, and automatically we're now at the end of human history, the end of the seventh seal, the end of the seventh bow, bowl. We know where we're going. God takes back the world. Okay. Then God's temple in heaven is open and we see the Ark of the Covenant, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. All that means is God is bringing perfection, perfect law-keeping to the world. All will be made right. Now we have the choosing of the sides, okay? So now we come down, we're at 1115 to 16.1. You get two sides lining up. Now this is fascinating. This is the introduction of Satan as the dragon, The beast that comes, uh, is it out of the sea? Which is the Antichrist. And the false prophet that comes out of the land, which is the false prophet. Now, so many things that we could talk about here. But what we have to not miss, or what we must not miss, is this is a counterfeit trinity. Satan wants to be God the Father. The beast is an Antichrist. He has a mortal wound, and yet he lives. He lives that Jesus had a mortal wound and he was raised back to life. So there's a total imitation by Satan in this Antichrist. You also have Satan, the dragon, giving all of his authority to the beast. Then you have the false prophet, which is a minister of propaganda, who then says, you must worship the beast or I'll kill you. So it's all focused in on the beast. I personally believe, because of the man of lawlessness in Thessalonians, that this is an individual Antichrist. And I think Satan has been trying to elevate this individual Antichrist throughout history. The reason we see examples of this is because Satan doesn't know the future. And he's like, well, maybe now is the time. And so he's tried to give all of his authority to many people in the past. I would include Hitler. I think the reason that World War II looks so much like it's coming to fruition here is because Satan thought it was. It's a birth pang. And so the end will look very much like World War II. Okay. Sure. So we have the devil's side, which is the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, and you have God's side. Right after that, you have a vision of the Lamb with 144,000 standing on Mount Zion. So... The two sides are drawing up for the climactic battle of the ages. I think that this Antichrist comes onto the pages of history right here before we get to the, the seven bowls. The seven bowls are the activity of the Antichrist, which come right at the end. Three angels fly overhead. And the first angel says, you better fear God because judgment is coming. The second angel says, fallen is Babylon the great, even before it has fallen. Babylon is the devil's side, right? The world, the Antichrist, the false prophet. The third angel says, those who follow the beast will drink of God's wrath. Just a warning. This is going to happen when it happens. If you're alive, don't pick the wrong side. And then a voice from heaven declares that those who die in the Lord are blessed. Better to die in the Lord than to be uh, temporarily on the winning side with the antichrist then there's a vision of one like a son of man and angels reaping the earth with a sickle and people are like grapes in the wine press of the wrath of god and then the seven angels come out with seven plagues and seven bowls of wrath and they pour, pour them out the first bowl is poured out on the earth and painful sores come upon those with the mark of the beast the second bowl of wrath is poured out on the sea and the sea becomes blood and every living thing in the sea dies I see no reason why that's not literal. Whether it's blood or not, I don't know, but the death of all sea creatures, that makes sense. We have uncreation happening here. The third bowl of wrath poured on the rivers and springs and they become blood to drink. There is no more drinking water on the face of the earth. The fourth bowl is poured on the sun and people are scorched whatever that means some kind of like talk about global warming it's it's going to be hot fifth bowl poured on the throne of the beast and the king beast's kingdom is plunged into darkness i don't think we know what that means but there's total chaos in the bureaucracy of the antichrist i think is The best way and if there's technology I would imagine his computers go down I I imagine everything Is a disaster whatever that means Total darkness total chaos Total breakdown In the chain of command So people are gnawing their tongues They're in anguish they're cursing God because they're In pain but they don't repent The sixth bowl of wrath is poured on the river Euphrates and its water dries Up and then demonic spirits Come out of the dragon The beast and the false prophets and they assemble the kings of the whole world for battle at Armageddon. So these are frogs that come out. This I don't think that, I think this is symbolic. The the frogs are the words. It's the un it's a counterfeit trinity that somehow cobbles together a universal force against God's people who are huddled together in Jerusalem. They meet for battle in Armageddon, Megiddo, which is just up north. And the Antichrist wins that battle and comes down to Jerusalem to finish the job. That's That's the sixth bull. And it doesn't say in Revelation that the Antichrist wins the battle of Armageddon, but it does say that in Zechariah. The seventh bowl of wrath is poured into the air and that's when Babylon the Great is destroyed. Uh, and that's th- the rest of this section tells us what it means that Babylon is destroyed. So we have a vision of the whore of Babylon and the beast. Wh- wh- who is the whore of Babylon? I don't think we need to be too specific. The whore of Babylon are people who have refused to repent it's the world and they're riding the beast they're riding the antichrist and then babylon falls and then we have the wedding supper of the lamb so we go from earth where the beast like turns on the whore that is riding him and devours her and then you go like they were following the beast riding him And then they're they're devoured. Then you go up to heaven, and those who followed the lamb are being served supper, a wedding banquet. You see the contrast between the true and the counterfeit. The lamb and the beast. The beast is the counterfeit lamb, right? And then, Revelation 19 11 to 21, the return of Christ. You see him coming, he lands on the Mount of Olives in keeping with Zechariah's prophecy and he speaks the word and everyone who opposes him dies and he sends the birds of the air to be gorged on their flesh. After that, we have a vision. uh, We come into the vision of the new heavens and the new earth. So that's the end of the seventh scroll. I'm sorry I'm keeping you late, but... We're almost there, and this is our last week, so it doesn't matter. You don't have to come back, (laughs) Um, but I mean, could we just drop it now? Not really, right? Right after the return of Christ, we transition to the millennial kingdom. I can't remember. It's like seven times in five verses for a thousand years, for a thousand years, for a thousand years, the dragon is bound for 1,000 years. Satan is bound for 1,000 years. The saints are raised back to life to reign with Christ for 1,000 years. After the 1,000 years, Satan is released from his prison to deceive the nations and to wage war against Jesus. But Satan is defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. It's Armageddon take two. But like Satan has as much chance of winning that as he did the first time. The whole point is after 1,000 years... He can still muster an army on the face of the earth that even though Jesus has been on earth reigning for a thousand years, the depravity of unsaved humanity is such that they will choose the beast and the dragon over the lamb who wants to save them. The whole point, one of the main points of the millennium is to prove the depth of the depravity of humanity. The other point is to fulfill all of the promises to Israel that there will be a kingdom. We're going to end with the macro typology too. So we'll remind ourselves of that. I believe in an earthly millennium. Now, I don't think it needs to be a thousand years because one thousand is ten times ten times ten. That's a cube, which equals a thousand. So it's a perfect amount of time. That's what I think it means. God has set aside a perfect amount of time to wrap up all the loose ends from all of His prophetic promises in the Bible. You know, like you, you get to the last uh, episode of Lost, and you're like, they didn't tie up anything. That's not gonna happen to God. This is His story, and He's gonna wrap it up perfectly. He hasn't even told us how He's gonna wrap up everything in the Bible, but He's got 10 times 10 times 10, 1,000 years to wrap up everything so there's no loose ends. To me, the millennium is essential because that's God's time to make sure that everything is perfectly fulfilled. After that, you have the final judgment. Everyone who has ever lived, from Adam to the last person conceived, will be resurrected and judged. Everyone will be exiled to the lake of fire, which is hell. No one is in hell yet in hades sheol it's a whole it's a waiting room if you're unsaved you're in sheol you'll be raised back to life in a body and that body will never be able to die it's, you go to the place where the worm will never die that is you'll always have your physical glor- uh, raised body and it will never die but you'll be in the lake of fire the lake of fire is that that total exile from any of god's goodness so we're left to ourselves basically in my understanding of the lake of fire and all the hell that you need is to be left to yourself without any common grace whatsoever. And you're, you're in a place with demons and other human beings who, who have no drop of God's common grace to safeguard them from living out the most vicious, heinous evil that they could conjure. That, to me, is so much worse than a hot place. That's the lake of fire. God doesn't make it a lake of fire. We do. Humanity does. Angels do. Then you have um, those who are in the Lamb's book of life. And this is the final, this is the fulfillment of the Passover and God's wrath passes over and they're invited in to the new heavens and the new earth. In chapters 21 and 22, you have a new heavens and a new earth that replace the first heaven and the n- first earth. That's not a brand new universe. It's the glorification of the universe that we have. Second Peter 3 says it'll be dissolved with fire. I have no reason to doubt that. But then, just like Jesus, Jesus is the, the prototype. He was resurrected. There's continuity. This universe will be resurrected with the same footprint, and yet it'll be glorified, and then God will put heaven on earth And we will live with God forever. It's a good way to end the book, the Bible. So I think if we go on the simplest possible path for the book of Revelation, it doesn't need to be that complicated. There's a lot of things I can't answer because we won't be able to answer, who are the two witnesses? Well, we could conjecture about that. What matters is it will all make sense when we're in the new heavens and the new earth. And and there's general themes. It's going to get bad before the end. I want to end with this. This is what we've endeavored to do over these last 14 sessions. The Old Testament is a picture of salvation history. We were in slavery, but we... uh, we put the blood of the Passover lamb on us we came out of slavery we were baptized like as if through the Red Sea and we entered into a covenant with God in the New Jerusalem just as they entered into covenant with God at Mount Sinai now we're in the wilderness this is our Christian life we're in the wilderness waiting for the return of Christ when Christ returns Revelation 19 we've just been there we pick up. So the first coming of Christ is the Torah. The Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, the prophets and the writings really capture the return of Christ. You have the conquest by Joshua fulfilled in Revelation 19 when Jesus takes back the world. You have the monarchical history of judges through Second Kings which are fulfilled in that millennial kingdom in Revelation 20 verses 1-10. to 10. You have that exile to Babylon which is bad but nothing in comparison to the final exile in the lake of fire in Revelation 2011 to 15 and then you have the new Jerusalem which was a total failure in some ways uh, ultimately maybe not temporally but when Ezra and Nehemiah tried to rebuild Jerusalem it just didn't satisfy but the new Jerusalem described in Revelation 21 and 22 will bring to fulfillment every prophetic hope promise and expectation. I want to end then I'm going to read four verses from the book of Joshua. Let me go back out here. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Return of Christ, fall of Babylon, conquest, Let's go back in time to the type. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. You shall do this for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, the priests shall blow their trumpets. Seven and seven and seven, telescopic view. The fall of Jericho is a type of the fall of Babylon, the world, the beginning of a new age, where Joshua takes conquest of the promised land and Joshua the Christ takes conquest of the universe. It's all there. Thank you for being a part of this journey through the Bible. I have loved preparing it and teaching it. I hope you've come away with uh, if nothing else, a a hunger and a thirst to know more. Let me pray. God, I thank you for these men. I thank you that they've stayed fifteen minutes later than the scheduled time. I pray that as we think on uh, the things that we've discussed over the last fourteen sessions, eighteen weeks that you would open our minds, help us to retain what we've learned and I pray that you would uh, give us a desire to get back into the word to know it better and then to be excited to share it with others. Jesus, we know for certain that you're coming back and when you come back, I pray that we would be ready whether we're alive or in the grave that we would be ready to respond to your call to be glorified and come in behind you as we watch you take back world that you made we love you Lord Jesus you are our king you are an awesome God and we love you in your name we pray amen